Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts, and not every um, uh, uh, they they are not uh, carbon copies one of another. The the wording is not always the same. Sometimes even uh, the order of events may be just a little different. But if we will study what the Bible says, we'll find that there is a uh, cognitive a uh, a, a simple and, and an arrangement of events here. And uh, people, uh, one of the things that we do as, as a human race, as people, is we tell stories. And what the Bible is doing here is telling us the story of Jesus And it's giving us that story from four different points of view. And so we we need to understand part of what many people, as they pick up the Bible, they say, oh, well, Matthew and Mark and Luke, they, they, they kind of agree, but John, he is way off most of the time. They call Matthew and Mark, Luke, um, the uh, synoptic gospels, and John is kind of doing his own thing. But so far as we've studied, we, we have four different testimonies of the same events. And uh, we have a solid... And the fact that there is just a little bit of difference in the way things happen tells us that we did not have people sit down and think together. How many of you listen to uh, the news on a fairly regular basis? Uh, it will seem that certain stories, as reported in, in the news media, it's like someone sat down, you turn in one station, and they're saying exactly the same words. Has anybody noticed that? And, and, and you tune in the second one, and the, uh, and the same, it's like somebody wrote a script for the different networks. And, um, uh, we're not accusing anyone of that, but it certainly seems that we are not getting an independent accounting of what is going on. Be careful when, when history agrees too much. Uh, what it means is somebody's not telling the story, somebody's reading a script. And so don't get overly anxious as we go through the temptation of Jesus. If we get that far, uh, we'll find that Luke reverses the order of temptations two and three, does that mean that he is inaccurate in his reporting? No. The same three temptations are recorded. There's no way that you can uh, um, think that they're bringing something brand new or something opposing into uh, the situation. It's just the way people tell stories. Let the Bible tell the story of Jesus because Jesus was a real human being and he lived a real life. Matthew was one of the disciples. Mark, as far as we understand, was a very young man, maybe even just a teenager uh, during the life of Christ. Uh, We believe that he is identified with uh, the young man that was in the garden when Jesus was arrested and uh, they went to grab him, and he ran out of the garden and left his 
uh, cloak there in the arms of the men from the chief priests and Pharisees. Uh, he was also the one that traveled with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey and, was, and left early and was the reason they argued. And most people believe that Mark gets most of his information from Peter, who was certainly an eyewitness to that. There's nothing very uh, uh, solid there about that. Now, Luke, he was a companion of Paul. He was more of a historian. He came along a little later, and he assessed and recorded all of these events. And then John, of course, was the beloved apostle, the one who leaned on Jesus at the Last Supper, and we have his account. And I'm going to go on record here, just right from the beginning. Someone said uh, that Matthew was written to the Jewish people, and Mark was written to the Romans, and Luke was written to the Gentiles. And uh, there's no evidence of specific audiences to the writers of the Gospels. What we have is four independent testimonies of the same facts, and we put them together. And uh, I do, uh, as as we working on harmonizing these things and telling one story, I, I want you to be careful. We do not take away the verses of the Bible. Many people, uh, I've forgotten the technical term, have tried to assemble one single narrative and leave out other verses that are repetitive. Uh, I don't believe we should do that. God put the four independent testimonies here. We should leave each word in our Bible and we should read them, but we should read them and understand that they are telling the same story. So here we are, Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to start with John the Baptist. It says, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, uh, from the text, when Jesus was baptized, he was about 30 years old. John the Baptist was roughly six months older than Jesus. So, here, uh, from the events of the uh, announcement to Zacharias in Luke chapter 2 that he would have a son. That was John the Baptist. Then, six months later, Mary hears and, and, and is told about the birth of Jesus. We're now approximately 31 years into the historical record of the New Testament, of the gospel message. Now, the rest of the time that we are going to spend in the Gospels is only going to cover about three and a half years. So, and we do not have very much data. People often like to go to the apocrypha and pseudepigraphal books and try to say, well, this is what really happened. The Bible doesn't tell us. You want me to tell you why? Because... Eating locust and wild honey every day for 20-some years, as John the Baptist would have in the wilderness, it kind of repetition. Uh, Jesus just grew up. We have the one story from when he was 12 years old. Everything else was summarized. He grew in stature and favor with God and man and wisdom as well. So... 
Now we're about 31 years here into the gospel record. And in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I want you just to put that in your mind and remember that because when Jesus begins preaching here in about somewhere in that five to six month time period after John begins preaching, Jesus is going to preach the exact same message. He is going to pre- preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, we'll take just a moment. The word repent means to have a change of heart that is so deep and so real it alters your life direction. That, that is what the word repent means. Uh, it doesn't necessarily demand emotion to any degree to be involved, but what simply, if you remember when you got saved, what were you doing before you got saved? You were trying to take care of your sin, were you not? Or maybe you just didn't care and said, I'm just going to run up the list. There's nothing I can do to get rid of my sin, so I'm just going to do it. Uh, repentance is a change. Repentance is bringing my sin to God. The seed of all false religion is you having the ability to do something that will take away your sin. The Bible teaches that only Jesus can take away our sins. Can we say amen to that? And so John is preaching and it tells us, uh, for this was he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That comes from the prophecy of Isaiah. And then in Malachi, it, the last two verses of your Old Testament, it tells us that the spirit of Elijah or Elias would come and he would turn the hearts of the fathers toward the children and the hearts of the children toward the fathers. And so this was what um, John's ministry was to do, was to make the men and women, of course, of Israel concerned about their eternity. You see, it had been 400 years since God had given an open prophecy. Then we have this brief little glimmer. John, I mean, uh, Zacharias, your prayer's heard. You're going to have a son. You're going to call him John. Mary, you're going to have a son that is going to... Have no earthly father. Your son is going to be called the son of God. Then the door closes again. Thirty years later. Plus the time of uh, gestation and that. Almost 31 years now. Now we have John stepping out of the wilderness. And beginning to preach the gospel message. He says, repent. You've got to change. You've got to stop doing things the way you are doing them. 
There has got to be a change not only on the outside, but it's got to start on the inside, a change of heart. And John, when someone repented, he baptized them in water. That's why we have a baptistry up here in the floor. Uh, our baptism that we do in our church today is directly connected to what John did. Let me ask you a question. Are you more repentant because you get wet in the baptistry? No. But what are you doing? You're giving a public testimony that something has happened where nobody... You're doing something that people can see to give a testimony of something people can't see. Do you know what happens when a person gets saved? They should get baptized. Amen? What is that? Are you more saved when you get into the water? You know, uh, you have religions that teach that all you have to do is sprinkle a little water on somebody and they receive the Holy Ghost. Good for drinking, not good for baptism. Uh, the Bible tells us that you make the decision in your heart for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What's the rest of it? That whosoever, what? Believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know what? I cannot see you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot see me believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God has given us this thing called baptism as a testimony. A physical testimony of what has happened on the inside. Now, we've gone through this uh, uh, before. John's baptism had a different focus. John was saying, there cometh one after me. Jesus is coming. I do not know who he is. I know that he is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the one that brings salvation. And so, Peter, James, John, all, all the disciples of Jesus were baptized by John. They said, we don't know who he is, but when he comes... We are pledged to stop believing in what we can do and in the traditions of our fathers. And we're going to believe on the person that God has sent. They then were baptized by water. And it's interesting and something of note that none of the apostles were baptized again. Jesus never baptized anyone. John's baptism looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, was sufficient. Till we get to Acts chapter 19. How many of you remember that story? That's when Paul was going through the coast and he, of, of uh, what is modern-day Turkey here, and he met a group of men who had been baptized unto John's baptism. There's only one thing that's different now. You see, when John was alive and when he was preaching... Jesus had not yet died on the cross, resurrected from the dead. We get to Acts chapter 19, and now we're another 40 years down in history from the time of Jesus' resurrection. Or at least 30. And so, 
Guess what? Believing in the coming Lord after He came is not sufficient. You must have the name attached. You must believe in the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, what I'm trying to do here is help us get a hold of this thing that John's message and our message other than the direction we're looking at in the, in the uh, travel of time, John was looking forward, we're looking backward. Same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you're going to be part of that kingdom, you've got to stop what you're doing. You've got to allow the Word of God to do the work in your heart to change you and bring you to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, we have this story here, and it's also recorded, and the the references are there under uh, Roman numeral chapter 5, all of the scripture that we're covering here. And so, if you want to follow along, just read all of those passages there. And uh, we we are now given a description uh, of John in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 3. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And so the first part of John's message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham." And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now this was very different. John's first message to Israel at large was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But when the religious leaders showed up who refused to repent, John had a little different message for them, didn't he? called them a bunch of snakes and told them what they were and that if he said bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. He said this idea of just saying I want to repent is not biblical repentance. This idea of just getting on the bandwagon and coming along for the ride does not mean you're going to have a relationship with God. He said I want you guys to prove it. And he said the... Uh, Acts is laid to the root of the trees. If you're not producing good, God-honoring works, God is going to remove you from the spectrum of Christian service. Now, how prophetic was that? This was spoken somewhere around 31 A.D., 30 A.D. In 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed by the armies of Rome. And it has not yet been rebuilt even to this day. He said, 
He was going to put the axe to the roots and remove every tree. They had made the temple of God nothing but a trinket. Nothing but uh, empty ritual that they went through. And so now he tells us about the baptisms. In verse 11, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." So John mentions here, he says, I baptize you with water unto repentance. You repent in your heart. You, you have a change of heart that results in a change of life direction. And you give a public testimony by going into the water. The word baptize simply means immerse. Uh, it, it's, uh, that's why even the, to this day, the Greek Orthodox Church, they baptize the babies. Uh, they'll have a baptismal fount, usually somewhere around that big, and it's got, uh, it'll be this high off the floor, and the priest will take the baby by the arms and hold his nose and head and put him under the water. Because they know what the word means. Uh, the Catholic Church, uh, in medieval ages, and we've been through this just very quickly, they believed if you took a bath, between October and April, you would die. Now, how many of you know that not taking a bath for six months is much more dangerous than anything else? But that's what they believed, and so uh, it's actually in the history books. The, the, the Pope said uh, uh, the temperate climate of, of Palestine leads to body immersion, but... The colder temperatures, God understands that we can't baptize the Bible way. Well, being Baptist, we like doing things the Bible way. And so you know what we do? We just get a tank and heat up the water and baptize somebody. Amen? And if it's cold, you shiver. But you'll get over it. Amen? Uh, we, we do it the Bible way. It is full body immersion. We understand today, after all of these things, that baptism identifies us with Jesus Christ. It pictures his death going into the water, his burial under the water, his resurrection out of the water. That, that is the illustration. Uh, many historians try to say that baptism was just a continuation of the Jewish religious washings. Not true. No, no connections can, as such can be made. Here's why. The practice of the Jewish washings that, that we have record from Jewish tradition, you washed yourself. Here, we have a scriptural authority that does the baptism for you. You can't baptize yourself. And so... That breaks the connection right there. In the Jewish days, if you said uh, they, they had several washings and, and uh, if it was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, the word baptizo would be used because 
a, a immersion, a full body washing was considered, is, is, is what the word baptism simply means. But the rabbis would stand in the bushes beside the river or the body of water and they would tell you what to do and you did it to yourself. That has no connection to what was going on here because here, if John didn't do it, it didn't count. And that's why we start with the testimony of Jesus, which we'll get to in just a few minutes, where he came to John to be baptized of him because he was going to do things the Bible way. Now, before we get there, John says, there's one coming after me. He said, he's mightier than I. He said, he is greater prophet than I am. He said, I'm not even worthy to pick up his shoes. He said, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And then John explains it. If, if you want to understand your Bible, just let your Bible tell you what it says. It says, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, that may be a little bit of a mystery, unless you've been around the church, because we go through this passage pretty regular, just to make sure everybody gets it here. But it says, whose fan is in his hand. This is talking about the ancient method of threshing. Uh, they still do this in, in the Philippines, parts of Africa, India, uh, other parts of the world, the grain is gathered together. There'll be a threshing floor. The heads uh, of the wheat or barley, oats would be cut off. Uh, the rice uh, 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 stalks would be cut off from uh, the head bearing the rice. And then there would be a process, dragging rakes over it, sometimes having cattle walk on it. Different things would then break up and separate the kernels from the chaff or the husk. Now, you got a mess. It's all together. Now, chaff has no nutritional value whatsoever. And uh, so, you would take this mixture and the fanner would fan at one end of the threshing floor. You would throw it up into the air. The weightless chaff would be blown to the end of the threshing floor and the wheat would be in a heap in the middle of the threshing floor. Well, what do we do with the wheat? We put it in the storage bin. We don't want the rats eating it. We don't want it spoiling. We don't want the rain coming on and getting it wet. Uh, if, if wheat or uh, silage gets too much moisture in it, it can actually catch itself on fire. And then you lose the harvest. And so all of these things would be done to protect the harvest. And then the chaff, which is prone to the same uh, spontaneous combustion and other things. Uh, rats live in it. If you just leave it piled up, it's, it's a very nasty thing. You've got to get rid of it. The only problem is John puts an adjective in here that's only found certain places in the Bible unquenchable. We're not just burning up the chaff. He says, unquenchable fire. Now, every time you see that phrase, unquenchable fire, in the Bible, it is referring to eternal damnation. 
So what we have John explaining is, there is one coming after me. He is bringing, he is going to baptize you one of two ways. He's either going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which is wheat into the garner, or salvation. Or he's going to baptize you with fire. You read in the book of Revelation, the ultimate end of the those that are unsaved, death and hell were cast where? Into the lake of fire. Could you be baptized in a lake of fire? Uh, that's why the terminology is such in your Bible. It is helping us grasp and understand that Jesus is the one that holds Eternal salvation, eternal damnation. Jesus is the only one. And he will give you salvation for those that believe in baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he will give damnation to those who refuse to believe baptism of unquenchable fire or the lake of fire. And here is just a simple rule of understanding if our understanding of these terms in this passage violate the simple wording of any other passage in Scripture, then we've got the wrong understanding. But when we take this understanding, we can go right through our entire New Testament, and there's a lot of confusion over baptism of the Holy Spirit. People, some people think it's just speaking in tongues. Well, that doesn't work because nobody's spoken tongues here. Um, that that doesn't work when we talk about the work of Jesus. But if we just put the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, boy, that almost sounds like baptism now, doesn't it? Uh, Ephesians, Paul said, we are sealed with the Spirit of promise. Does that sound like you're put under, sealed? The How many of you remember the old jelly jars where you pull the wax in the top? Well, that's the seal. And if you're under the seal, well, boy, that almost sounds like immersion to me. And we are put into the body of Christ, Romans chapter 6. Well, that sounds like immersion to me. Uh, Wow, you know what? The whole Bible now fits with the simplest of all explanations of this passage. And John said... Listen, I give the outward public testimony of what's going on on the inside. Jesus is coming. I don't know who he is, but when he comes, he's going to give you the reality of either spiritual eternity, biblical salvation, or a rejection of God's love and eternal damnation. So now we pick up our narrative here in Matthew chapter 3. It says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. So, now we have John. He's been preaching and preparing Israel several months here. Maybe three or four months at this time. Uh, John has been preaching. And now Jesus makes the trip from Galilee where he's living And he goes down to find John where he is baptizing. 
Now, we've already covered John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came to bear witness of that light. And so we have Jesus coming to John, verse 14. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? John says, wait a minute, Jesus, you're bringing that baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what I want. But what did Jesus say? Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus said, if I'm going to be perfectly obedient to God, John, you've got to follow God's direction and baptize me. Now, doesn't that sound a little strange? Did Jesus need anything? Did John add anything to Jesus? Absolutely not. He is God. There's nothing that could be added or taken away. But Jesus is setting the biblical example of what true Bible baptism is. You and I, once we're saved, must come to the biblical authority which Jesus commissioned the church in Matthew chapter 28, to baptize in Jesus' name, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And so we follow what the Bible teaches right down to this day. Jesus did not call John to him. Jesus did not tell John anything except... John, God sent you to baptize, and you've got to baptize me. Jesus humbled himself. And this also seals and helps us understand that baptism does not add any grace to you. It does not add any special favor. It does not give you any special position other than a public testimony that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ which is the mark of entrance to the body of Christ, the local church. And we're getting a little bit ahead, but that's uh, the direction that is there. And so, then the Bible says, then, uh, then he suffered him. The end of verse 15. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, I want you to skip with me, if you would, to uh, John chapter 1. And... If we understand correctly from Luke, immediately after Jesus was baptized, he was driven into the wilderness. He was there 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted. And I'm trying not to get too far ahead of myself here, but while we're talking about John, I just want to um, get this here in John chapter 1 and verse 15. John bear witness... Of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, isn't that 
a strange way of saying it, John was six months older than Jesus, physically speaking. And he said, he is preferred before me, for he was before me. You know what John was given testimony to? The eternality of Jesus Christ. That Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem's manger. He simply took on the nature of man. He became a man. The Bible word is Emmanuel, God with us. John's message now changed. Before, he was saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He said, there's somebody coming. After Jesus was baptized, John's message changed a little bit. It was now, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. He's saying, that's the guy I was talking about. John's message was to point people toward Jesus Christ. And if we'll read the rest of of John chapter 1, this narrative here in John chapter 1 happened after the time of temptation as Jesus came back on the scene after having been gone about 40 days. And anywhere John was, and Jesus was in the same place, John was pointing him out and said, This is the Lamb of God. And that's where the disciples, Andrew and Philip, began to follow Jesus. They were John's disciples. They had followed John for the months that he had preached. And when John pointed his finger and says, That's the man that I'm talking about, they stopped following John and began following Jesus. You see, that's the singleness of the message of the Bible. Amen? And so now we're going to take um, our our Bibles and go back to... um, Oh, why don't we just go to Luke and, and we'll read the account out of Luke. I've got a note here that Luke switches the... Um, the order of the temptations, just so someone doesn't say, see there, there's a contradiction in Scripture. It's not a contradiction. He just told the story in a different order. He doesn't change any of the facts, any of the quotations. Jesus' answer to each temptation was to quote Scripture. But I want you to understand, verse one of Luke chapter four, it says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness was just a place where people didn't live. And being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Now, It's just simply saying that Jesus was in the wilderness. He was fasting 40 days. He did not eat any food. The the simplest understanding was he did not eat food after sundown. He did not eat any food. About 40 days uh, is the longest normal period that a human being can go without regular nourishment and not do serious damage to their body. When this says afterward he was in hunger, it meant that at the end of this time period, Jesus knew that if he was going to take care of the body that God had given him, he needed to start nourishing it again. It's about as long as you can go. I think the longest 
fast on record is 70 or 80 days, uh, something like that. But that was a fast unto the death. And that's not what Jesus was interested in doing here. And the Bible tells us that the devil tempted him the entire 40 days. And at the end of this period, we have these three great temptations here. And people look at them and they say, what is the big deal? And the big deal is, if Jesus had sinned one little sin, he would not be God. God cannot sin. God cannot violate his own nature. That's what sin is. God is life. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That's what it makes the difference between sin and righteousness. Is righteousness brings life. Sin brings death. And you can put any sin you want in there. The sin of speeding, breaking the law, and and driving. How many people die on the highways of our country every year? Because of excess speed. Uh, Because of disobeying laws and not paying attention to things. We need to be careful and follow God's rules. But the first temptation was, verse 3, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, what was the great temptation here? Well, certainly part of it was for Jesus to supply his own needs instead of depending on God to supply his needs. When we read the end of this uh, passage here, It tells us that angels came down and ministered to him. God provided for Jesus in a miraculous way. But Jesus did not originate the miracle to serve himself. Can can I tell you that the devil is always out there trying to get you to do something to meet your own needs. To trust in yourself. To not be fully dependent upon God. And the devil starts it with, if thou be the Son of God. And he's going to reiterate this in nearly each temptation. Is the temptation for Jesus to prove or attempt to prove that he is the very God of gods. You know what? If it's real, if it's true... How much time do you spend trying to prove it? The fact that someone, and I've given this illustration many times, and it's really good good advice. If you're ever dealing with a salesman, and he starts on a list, he said, well, listen, man, I'm telling you the truth. I'm really telling you the truth. This is the best product. If you meet a salesman that starts doing that, go the other way. Because he is telling you he's accustomed to being accused of lying. And if there's that much accusation going on, yeah, some of it's probably true. 
Uh, and, and I... I will tell you that when someone begins to protest and begins to, oh, listen, man, you got to believe me. This is just really, I know it's hard to understand. And, and you don't want to accept the fact that this is a beautiful, brand new used car. But, I mean, it will, let me tell you, Jesus did not fall for the trick. We have people running around trying to prove the Bible is true today. How many of you remember the big debate between Bill Nye, the science guy, and, and I can't even remember the other guy. Was it Ken Ham? Or, yeah, I think it was Ken Ham. And uh, they were going into this huge civic center and thousands of people were going to come and they were going to prove once and for all which is true. Well, I read the exit polls. The people that went in believing in evolution came out believing in evolution. The people that went in believing in the Bible came out believing the Bible. You know what? Nobody's minds got changed. Because that's not how you deal with it. If we go back to John the Baptist, this is how you deal with it. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You've got to make a choice to either believe the testimony of this book called the Bible or reject it. That's how simple it is. If you'll believe what the Bible says about your sin and about what Jesus did to pay for it, is it really that big of a stretch to believe that God created heaven and the earth in six literal days? Now, that's little stuff compared to the forgiveness of our sins, is it not? Hello? Amen? Do I need to start over again? Okay. I'm not trying to throw a monkey wrench in here. Just trying to help us grab a hold of this thing. The, the miracles that Jesus did, is that so hard to reconcile with the fact that the Bible says that He is God in human flesh? Now, if you can believe what the Bible says about who Jesus is, miracles are very simple to accept. You see, the reason we stumble at all of these things is because we refuse to repent. We refuse to stop thinking our way. When we do repent, we stop thinking our way and start thinking God's way. And all of a sudden, this book called the Bible is not a book of contradictions. It's a book of agreement. And we can believe what the Bible says. The second temptation... Or third, here, uh, it says, And the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now, Matthew records this as the last temptation. Luke puts it in the middle. Again, there's no need to make a big deal about this. But the idea here is the devil was trying to offer a way around obedience to God. How many of you have tried a shortcut, you don't have to raise your hand, to being obedient to God? 
I'll tell you what, they don't work now, do they? Never have, never will. You, you want God's best for your life, you just obey the Word of God. Jesus had a ministry to fulfill, three and a half years. Most of that ministry, if we understand our Bible correctly, I believe we do, Jesus had to put up with a great deal of frustration from the disciples, did he not? Uh, and yet, Jesus put up with that. Then, he was beaten, he was cursed, he was spit upon, he was nailed to the cross, he died, all in obedience to the Word of God. The last temptation here is he took him to the pinnacle of the temple. This was the top, the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 9, and said, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, you know what the devil was doing here? He's quoting Bible. You see, the devil is good at quoting Bible. He's better at it than you are. And it will always make sense when the devil quotes the Bible because he knows how to keep it in its context better than most preachers do. But he's always got an ulterior motive. He's always got a hook in there somewhere. He told Adam and Eve, he says, you'll be like gods, knowing both good and evil. Yeah, that's true. They didn't die physically, but they did die spiritually. But once you know evil, you can't go back and know good. And so they were cut off from God. And he was offering Jesus a way to prove himself God other than by faith. And I want to challenge you, if you do not accept Jesus as the God of the Bible by faith, you cannot be saved. It has to be by faith. If you can accept the God of the Bible based on reason, that's not repentance. That's not salvation. You must accept it by faith. And Jesus said, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him. Now look at that last phrase there. For a season. You know what? The devil never stopped trying to torment Jesus. But I promise you this, he didn't get it done. He did not get the victory. Jesus got the victory. And we've already traveled over um, uh, John's uh, testimony of Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to stop right here at the first miracle, and we're, Lord willing, we'll pick up there uh, in two weeks. It's next Sunday night. Uh, I believe Brother Leland is preaching next Sunday night. Do you know about that? Uh-oh. Uh, well, we'll work on that. Somebody's preaching next Sunday night. Pray for us as we travel, and, uh, and uh, we will work on all those details. Sorry about that, Leland. I thought that was all discussed. All right, let's just have a word of prayer here. And if you need to come and pray, the altar's open. uh, And then we'll get into our regular prayer time.